Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the Authors on Fire podcast. I am Pat Rulo, and I'm here today with a Firebird Book Award winning author to share with you, R.L. Crossland. And his winning book is titled The Abalone Ukulele, A Tale of Far Eastern Intrigue. With the benefit of 35 years of service, active and reserve, as a U.S. Navy SEAL officer, two hot wars, one cold, first deployment, Vietnam, last deployment, Afghanistan, Roger has found projecting his grasp of naval intrigue 100 years into the past an enjoyable challenge. He has written internationally on the subject of maritime unconventional warfare and includes U.S. Naval Institute proceedings and the New York Times among his credits. We have so much to find out. Welcome to the network, Roger. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a great day. It is a great day. It's a great day to be with you and to congratulate you on winning the Firebird Book Award. Boy, thank you. It's one of my uh, favorite uh, acknowledgments. I, I, I like the, uh, the technique that you use to uh, approach new books, the categories, well-thought-up production. Oh, thank you. Be honored that you said that because I do put a lot of thought into it and hope that it does resonate and it reaches others. So thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Before we get into your book, did I read somewhere that you're also or were also a trial lawyer? Yes. Yes. I, uh, I've i had overlapping careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went into the active duty Navy, served in Vietnam and in Korea. And then at the end of my uh, service, I stayed in the reserves and uh, went to law school, uh, became a uh, the general counsel of a corporation, and then became a trial lawyer and actually a, a special public defender, among other things. So mm-hmm. I've had overlapping careers, but at the same time I was a lawyer, I was doing a lot of reserve duty. I've sort of been riding two horses at the same time, <laughs> and... Uh, all these good sources of uh, inspiration and dramatic tension, uh, courtrooms and, and wars. I was just going to say that, that your backgrounds, where they might seemingly be different, they're really not and highly related, and then such food for inspiration for writing. So yeah, before we dig into this specific book, why this book? Why this genre? As you said, why aren't you writing techno thrillers in a contemporary setting? Well, for one thing, uh, special operations and conventional warfare rely on the surprise as one of their, their greatest strengths. I can't disclose or get into detail about uh, SEAL operations. It, it, it would compromise future Right. Uh, operations and give away our secrets. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with small units, it, one little mistake can get a lot of people hurt. I wanted to write about what it felt like to be in a special operation. And rather than be a techno uh, thriller, uh, I wanted to be a historo uh, thriller writer. The time period and area is one that I, I know a lot about. I spent a lot of time in the uh, the Far East. And this the time period I picked is just full of dramatic tension for the United States. 
up until uh, the late 19th century, we're not uh, involved in international intrigue. Uh, but then uh, we get in, there's the Sino-Japanese War and and the uh, the Spanish-American War, uh, the Boxer Rebellion, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, uh, the Great White Fleet. All sorts of things are happening. So it's a great background, and it's full of uh, uh, possibilities. There is a prequel to uh, the Abalone ukulele, which is Jade Rooster, and it, too, is set in this period and has a couple common characters. Uh, But from 1893 uh, is, is the start of the book, and then it, it's deeply set in 1913, 20 years later. So it, uh, it fits my strengths in areas I know or am willing to research. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a writer, you better like what you're writing about and find it interesting because at, at the end of the day, at least you've lived the adventure. Oh, for sure. I can't imagine any author writing about something that they don't want to know about or that doesn't strike them or that they're not passionate about. I, I can't even imagine that. So um, yeah, maybe give us a peek, just a little bit of a broad overview of the book, The Abalone Ukulele, so our listeners have an idea of what they might encounter when they get a copy. Okay, the the Abalone Ukulele is a historical novel set in 1913 Shanghai, where four cultures are about to collide, China, Korea, Japan, and the U.S. Uh, The point of collision is three tons of Japanese gold meant to undermine an already collapsing China. Uh, One of my uh, reviewers calls it a sprawling, sprawling rather, epic of greed, gold, and redemption. The central character is a Korean courier uh, named uh, Skookum Yi. Uh, Skookum is actually a name he picks up in, uh, uh, in afterwards, uh, but he is a tribute courier to China, and he, at this time, China is supposed to be a protecting country for Korea. Korea has been at war over centuries with China, and finally they come to an understanding, and Korea pays tribute yearly in the form of several tons of silver and and produce. And China, in return, is supposed to protect uh, Korea. Well, Japan is feeling its oats now and has designs on Korea. And one of the things it wants to do is drive a wedge between Korea and its protector, China. And so Yi takes a uh, tribute load of silver to China, smuggles it in, uh, because there's a lot of banditry around at the time, and in good faith, and he makes a couple of mistakes. He's a young, very competent, uh, very innovative 
military officer, but he's human too. And he makes a mistake, and the Japanese hijack the tribute. That, of course, puts the Chinese-Korean uh, uh, relationship in jeopardy, and the Japanese capture Yi and tell them he's in disgrace, and they'll make sure uh, the lost, loss of the uh, tribute money is uh, his fault. So he he has to he finds a way out, and that takes a ship and ends up in the U.S. Uh, later on, uh, another in 1911, the second uh, protagonist, uh, <clears throat> Hudson, who's a quartermaster, third class, very interested in a ukulele in a pawn shop, crosses paths with E. And between them, and still a third uh, character, uh, Stuyvesant Draper, an intelligence officer who's a uh, naval militia officer, all get together to come up with a plan to heist the gold ingots that are coming into Shanghai to undermine the, the economy there. And they go to the, the local admiral. And uh, next thing you know, we have a sub Rosa uh, hijacking done through naval intelligence. So that's that's it. Without doing yes. too much in the way of spoilers, the characters are all interesting. These three, plus they they all seem to have romantic uh, interests, and there are three other women who are both uh, uh, complementary in. Uh, complicating uh, what is all going on. And it's one thing to heist three tons of gold. It's another thing to figure out where to put it and hide it. Fascinating. One of your reviewers has called the book a masterclass in historical fiction, which says to me that the research is impeccable, but for that to work, the character development also has to match, and you kind of just alluded to the characters. Let's talk a bit about the character writing, because without them, the research would just hang there. So how was it for you to write your characters? Yi is, is by far the most uh, interesting character. Uh, he, he is in disgrace. He's tarnished the family name. He is about to hit bottom uh, after he escapes from uh, the Japanese. Uh, and he ends up being a cook on a ship that's headed to Skagway. And he goes through all sorts of things, and he's dealing with a lot of uh, Americans. He's always thinking, and he is ultimately comes from a long line of soldiers, and he's resilient. And... He comes to an epiphany that uh, too many people, he, he, he lost all his men in, in the detail. It's a story of redemption. He's redemption. And we, Hobson, his, his parents, he, he's multilingual. He speaks Japanese and Korean. His parents were missionaries in Korea and in uh, uh, Japan. So he is a sort of fixer, negotiator, 
the rest of the crew on a ship come to him whenever they have problems because their problems are often related to what's going on in Shanghai. And he, he, he is the intercultural touch and sensitivity to, uh, uh, to pull a lot of things off. So somebody called him a fixer, but fixers are cold and uh, uh, self-dealing. Uh, he, that's not him. Uh, he's, he, he's an intermediary, and he's got a moral sense, too, and w- pursues that. Uh, and finally, uh, Draper, uh, Stuyvesant Draper, uh, is a professor from uh, a major New York university. He gets himself into it. He's at once bored and has gotten himself into a little trouble. So he takes his naval militia commission and parlays it into uh, being an intelligence officer in in Asia. He he can speak and and better read uh, Japanese. So it, it all works together, and they all have their problems. Poor uh, poor. Uh, Draper has got all of Asia is his his circuit, and uh, he's a junior, a lieutenant junior grade, and they're all. He's got an admiral he's working for who's who's known as Blowtorch or old old blue flame frame flame. He's stressed out, but he is not going to let himself be overcome. So they all carry burdens. And uh, uh, Hudson doesn't even know what's happened to his missionary parents. They've disappeared. They're in Korea. Uh, and it's not a good time to be uh, uh, an American in Korea, though a lot of the missionaries did survive. Will this be the end for these characters, or will they show up in future books? Oh, no. I'm working on one right now uh, <laughs> that's set in 1914. And 1914 is when the world blows wide open. And a lot of these countries are involved somehow. The U.S. is staying clear of the war, but uh, they've got to watch Japan. Uh, one, one thing during this whole period is after uh, Teddy Roosevelt gets his peace prize for negotiating between the Japanese and the uh, Russians, he comes to the realization that the Japanese are dangerous, that he's had lots of respect for them in the way they've been industrialized and modernized in the space of 50 years. But then he realizes their agenda is is conquest. Mm -hmm. And so... The Teddy and the U.S. Navy put together something called Plan Orange, which describes uh, Japan as the potentially most dangerous uh, country in, on the Pacific. And they, they formulate a plan, war plan, back in 1906 to address Japan. It, it never goes too much farther than that. But Japan is recognized by the U.S. as a potential enemy, and the British have have made Japan an ally. So uh, England and America are actually opposing points of view, 
of Japan in in this time period. Mm-hmm. All right, so we can look forward to another book. Oh yes. Good, good, good. You know, you talk about unconventional warfare. What would be considered unconventional warfare? <laughs> well, I'm trying to gestalt. I think is you define things by what they're not. The unconventional warfare is are things that are not conventional warfare. But unconventional warfare in this instance is economic warfare, among other things. Okay. It's it's conduct uh, where the enemy, unconventional warfare operations may include false flag yes. uh, operations where you're pretending to be somebody else, mm-hmm. some other country, mm-hmm. or uh, bandits. It means uh, operations that aren't uh, during a pitched war, an actual declared war. Right. Uh, and Japan is doing this. In fact, the, the first heist of the tribute is an operation by the Japanese military prior to 1893 against China and Korea, where there isn't supposed to be a war there. This isn't even supposed to be happening. Uh, it, it involves uh, using spies, espionage techniques, keeping things hidden, using irregular forces. It's almost impossible to give a conclusive conclusive definition of unconventional warfare. Would you say that's going on all the time? Well, let's hope not. That's done in, should be done in extreme situations. Now, you know, looking at today, uh, I suspect there are operations that are occurring. There's a, an operation that was just done uh, by, the, in, by Ukraine where they go all the way into Siberia and blow up a tunnel mm-hmm, be, mm-hmm. On, the, on the railroad line between China and Russia. And nobody knows who did it. Nobody admits to having done it. Uh, but it has extreme effect on the Russian and China uh, mutual assistance uh, program Mm -hmm. that China can't get weapons to Russia and Russia can't get oil to China. So, and as I said, nobody's admitted to this operation. It's just sort of happened. That'd be one way of identifying a special operation. Mm-hmm. Nobody admits it. And, uh, nobody can be clearly blamed for what's happened. Right. Wow. Lots to know and, and understand here. It might seem unusual for people to think about back in 1913 that there's countries, the United States or any other country that is taking part in unconventional warfare. But I think human nature kind of dictates that. That's, that's right. It's... Um, uh, desperation, but perhaps, and, and the great hope uh, is that if an operation can be performed by a few people and cause minimal casualties, right. uh, maybe that's that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, a lot of it has to be done sub rosa. It's got to be done under the table. Under the table, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there is, there are all sorts of. Uh, instances where that has been done in the Civil War. Uh, Lincoln used a fellow named Cushing to do uh, maritime operations that were 
a little bit unusual. There's precedent for it. Uh, it just has to be the benefit should outweigh the, the risks. The risks. And, uh, fascinating. Just fascinating. Who have you found as your audience? And uh, are the people that are reading your books, are those the people that you expected? Or are you finding an audience outside of your expectations? There are people who read history, and I wish there were more people who read history. In fact, that is part of my my agenda. I think uh, we are uh, forgetting history in how we consider things, and especially young men are are not reading as much history as as they should be. That one of my uh, goals is to get people to read history. And historical fiction is what got me reading history growing up. Kenneth Roberts and James Clavell, uh, among others, inspired me to read more and more. Richard McKenna, uh, Eric Ambler, we're forgetting what has happened in the past. I I know one of the reasons I'm probably writing is when I knew I was going uh, to Vietnam in 1970, I get every book I could get my hands on on unconventional warfare. And I found the fiction ones, the historical fiction, were actually more helpful mm-hmm. than uh, nonfiction, that they filled in a lot of the blanks. There's a picture the public gets of the military that everything is just done clockwork and by the numbers. And that rarely happens mm-hmm. because. The military is staffed with human beings. They respond to different sorts of incentives and errors, and it all works out in the end, but it's an effort undertaken by human beings. And you've got to understand that when a word comes down from a general or an admiral, by the time it gets down to the the lowest level, uh, there have been some modifications, and you've got to understand that. And some of them are for the good, and some of them are for the bad. I, I, history is sort of my uh, objective. I, I want to cultivate cultivate an interest in history and in areas that even now we should pay a great deal of attention. So most of my readers are, are veterans are people who are interested in history. There's a strong cultural aspect in my books that I point out, well, here's uh, this person's thinking, and that's grounded in, oh, Confucius or in Buddhism or culture, sense of honor. Uh, There are a lot of things that mold how people come to decisions. And if you don't, if you go into a country and just expect everybody to think just like you do, uh, you're making a, a bad mistake. Mm-hmm. But to just discount a, a different view of how things should be done is is a deep mistake. You've got to ask, try and figure out who you're working with and who you're working against and what makes them tick. And my my history, my degree was in history sociology. And sociology is probably what I look at without even thinking that sociology is a study of the institutions that a culture puts together 
to hold itself together. I look back at my own experiences and the subjects that I was drawn to and that I came to late to the table, and history is one of them. And I always look back to think, wow, they made it so boring in school that maybe they should set the textbooks aside and pull out some awesome historical fiction. And then after that, then they can recreate the, the more of the historical facts after reading a book such as yours, where, where people could really get involved, not just with the history, but with the people and, and the storyline. So um, thank you to you for making the effort to put history out there in your historical fiction format. I always consider it like the sneaky genre where you're getting your vitamins while you're eating your cookies here. You know, you're, you're enjoying it, but you're, but you're getting something of value out of it. So, um, and historical fiction is one of our biggest categories. And I always find, find that to be interesting too. So, uh, that's a step in the right direction. All right, Roger, I want to make sure we're not missing anything that you wanted to highlight today. There's a lot more I'm sure we could talk about, but anything you wanted to touch on before we begin to wrap up? Oh, your, your last paragraph, that was great. Uh, ed- edify and entertain. No, that's that's always how I look at it. Mm-hmm. That it's It's got to be exciting and keep you leaning forward, but you're, you're, you can also justify it if Anybody looks down their nose at you and saying, well, no, I'm learning about what was going on in the Far East uh, in that time period. And it has some relation to what is happening now. Absolutely. Yes. It's always a smart idea to look back to figure out where you are and where you're going so that you perhaps don't make the same mistakes twice or you learn from them. So uh, thank you. All right. So we've got another book coming out soon. And then, if you would, share any and all contact information so folks could uh, know where to find you, your previous book, and your current book, and anything you write in the future. Where should they go? Okay. Well, my website is www.dreadnoughts.com hyphen bluejackets.com. The Dreadnoughts is spelled with an A-U rather than O-U. But that's my website. The the next book is uh, set for uh, 1914 when when it's going to be set. Let's actually get out in this century. I can't say. (laughs) Uh, But that's... uh, uh, the best place to uh, to follow me, okay. and uh, it's probably in the way right now is the, the way to uh, to follow me. If there's a personal interest in it, um, my email is limpet six at aol dot com. L i m p e t six at aol dot com. Excellent. All right. We are talking with Roger and that's R.L. Crossland. That's his author name. And the winning book is titled The Abalone Ukulele, Tale of Far Eastern Intrigue. And I think you've intrigued us today enough that we need to head out and get a copy of the book, your website, dreadnoughts-bluejackets.com. And I am so looking forward to more from you. You are um, you are quite a writer and quite a storyteller. And I am very happy that we had this opportunity to share you today. So thanks so much, Roger. Well, thank you, Pat. <laughs>